All right, Todd. Well, first, I wanted to say thanks for having me in here. Uh, great uh, being able to chat with you a little bit. Good to be in here and um, welcome to the show. Thanks for stopping by. My pleasure. Um, I want to start just with the basics. We're in the Easter Seals of Central Texas headquarters. For people that are unfamiliar with that organization and that those two words, talk to me about what, what that means. What is that? Easter Seals. Um, well, probably the place to start. It has nothing to do with Easter <laughs> or seals. Um, we are we don't uh, we we don't save seals, um, but um, it's a it's an organization that most people over the age of fifty have probably heard of. Yep. Um, because of our historical roots, we just celebrated our hundredth anniversary nationally about two years ago. In Central Texas, we've been in operation here for about 84 years now, 85 years. Um, and so we've been around a long time, but we're like a lot of nonprofits. We're one of those organizations that has gone about our business, helping people, um, figured out ways to do that really well and, um, and support and, and sustain ourselves. Um, uh, through revenue streams that don't require us to put billboards up all over town um, and have done a really good job serving people with disabilities. So we started um, a hundred and some years ago as the Society for Crippled Children in Cleveland, Ohio. And over the course of about the first 50 years or so of Easter Seal's life, um, operated as a society for crippled children. Obviously, the, the term crippled children um, needed to be changed, much to their credit, um, uh, way back in the 50s and 60s. Um, they realized that and went about finding ways to um, change the name. So at that time, uh, one of the most successful fundraising drives that the Society for Crippled Children did every year is every year around Easter time, they would send out these pages of stamps, hmm. free stamps, and that people could use um, with their name and address on them. Some organizations still do it today. And then they'd ask for a donation in return. And people loved it, raised a ton of money. And over time, the Society for Crippled Children in the public vernacular, we became known as, oh, you're the, you're the Easter seals people because <laughs> we would send the stamps or seals out around Easter time. Hmm. So um, we were just known as the Easter seals people. Hmm. So in the 60s or so, they decided, well, that's what everyone seems to know us as. So they changed their name to Easter seals. Hmm. Um and for years, our brand included uh, a visual of a stamp um, as kind of a subtle connection to that. Hmm. Well, like most fundraising campaigns, you know, it has a life cycle and it kind of outlived its usefulness eventually. And we still, they still produce stamps every year, seals that they send out, but it's, you know, it's, it's, it's more of a novelty than it is um, anything that supports us in a serious way as an organization. Um, but we've been Easter Seals ever since. So that's why most people over the age of 50 or 60 know who we are. <laughs> but one of our biggest challenges as an organization was finding a way um, to engage people under the age of 50 that knew nothing about the Easter seals um, back in the 50s and 60s. Um, and since then, um, financially, you know, we have grown um, exponentially as an organization. Nationally, we have 75 independent, um, locally governed and operated um, affiliates um, that collectively drive, um, I think it's about $5 billion worth of disability services, people of disabilities of all ages, every year. Um, we serve as a national network. We, we work with about 50,000 kids on the autism spectrum every day hmm. through the Easter Seals Network. Uh, we've grown our impact primarily by getting really good at... Um, uh, partnering with government agencies 
um, and securing government contracts for our services. And, um, and so we've been growing, expanding, um, really without the need to, you know, do big, you know, campaigns or for a long time, Easter seals did telethons, Mm -hmm. um, uh, after the Easter seals campaign outlived its usefulness, everyone started to do telethons. And I think right now, I think there's only one affiliate left still doing a telethon. It's Easter seals, Rio Grande Valley down in uh, McAllen Harlingen. And it's an amazing telethon, um, by the way, um, very successful for them. But um, telethons really are kind of a, a fundraising tool of the past yeah. also. Um, so we don't do telethons anymore. But at that same time, we kept growing, expanding, really building our brand as a, a, a trusted partner to government um, entities that we're looking to provide disability services to our population. Yeah. If you can, the, at the beginning, when it, this was, you know, started in, in Cleveland and it, it had a different name, what was the what was the genesis for the desire to have an organization like this? What were the initial services that were intended to be provided to the American public? That's a great question. So there was a um, a doctor in Cleveland whose son. Um, it was back in the in the twenties, um, or actually the teens. If it's over a hundred years old, um, I'm a little math challenged. <laughs> um, but his son was hit by uh, automobile and was disabled as a result of that accident. And at that time, so Easter Seals, our our core, one of our core services from day one has been rehabilitative therapy programs, physical, occupational, speech therapy, primarily. And so back in 1918 or 1919, physical therapy was like new age, right? Um, You know, it, it was like, almost like going to the local shaman almost, you know, it was, um, Little was known about it. It was not typical for a healthcare system to be involved in rehabilitative therapy. Mm. And so this physician in Cleveland needed um, answers for his son. And so um, he started a physical therapy program to to rehab his son. Mm. And that's what started. He started the first chapter in Cleveland saw the impact that it had on his son, how it helped him regain mobility, um, regain independence, and saw the impact that it had and became passionate about it and started growing chapters of the Society for Crippled Children um, back in the teens and 20s. And over time, throughout you know, roughly 100 years until today, who were the, who were the individuals that primarily were being serviced by what was then this uh, organization for crippled children? What's now the Easter Seals? What what's the range of the of the kids or the people in society that might uh, solicit those services? Yeah, we um, so um, I have some staff who cringe when I say this, but uh, <laughs> we're, I refer to it as kind of as the Walmart of disability services, right? So you know, uh, we we exist in in great partnership with a lot of other disability organizations that do amazing work. Um, that deal with specific disabilities like the, um, a, a United Cerebral Palsy, um, the uh, Multiple Sclerosis Society, MS Society is another one that deals with a specific condition. Um, Easter Seals, we are, we are in the broader disability space. So we serve people of any age, any background, um, and essentially any type of disability, whether it be physical, whether it be intellectual, um, behavioral, addictive, hmm. um, any type of barrier that an individual is experiencing that is holding them back from being able to live an independent community-based life, hmm. um, Easter Seals will find a way to, um, to help them overcome those barriers. Yeah. That sounds like a lot to bite off. Yeah, uh, and and uh, oh, it is a, a, every day. <laughs> certainly a, a worthy a worthy aim and a worthy mission. Is there of those four? Is there one 
that is taking up the plurality of the time maybe at this facility specifically in Austin? Yeah, we, um, we work with a lot of um, physical and intellectual um, in the physical and intellectual disability space. So um, in Central Texas, we operate about um, 12 different programs. Um, our two largest um, are our um, early childhood intervention program, which provides home-based therapy, um, physical, occupational speech, some nutrition counseling, service coordination, um, and uh, um, case management for families home-based for kids age zero to three hmm. that are experiencing some type of disability or, or developmental delay. Um, so we're the first line of defense for those kids when they come home from the NICU hmm. to help working with them and their parents. Uh, we don't just work with the kids. It's a parent activity because ultimately we want the parents to be the, the therapist, the yeah. best therapist for their child to make sure that that child is um, school ready by the age of six. Hmm. And so we, we serve about 500 families a month. Uh, through that home-based therapy program. Um, our second largest program is a paid job training program. We do lawn and landscaping across Central Texas, and we hire uh, people with uh, disabilities and barriers. We employ them um, as a way um, for them to kind of get back on track mm. and take the next step. Mm. And so... Um, throughout the year, we'll employ probably uh, uh, 250 to 200 individuals, adults, in that program. Mm. Um, and we mow grass, weed eat um, in parks, along highways. Um, we work with the city of Austin, Travis County, um, some federal buildings downtown. We also have a janitorial services program. Mm -hmm. So we'll hire folks um, to do janitorial work. And then when we employ them, we have licensed professional counselors on staff that can work with those clients. We provide uh, uh, free counseling services, other wraparound services that they need um, to hopefully uh, move up yep. and, and um, get promoted into other higher paying jobs. Yeah. The, uh, the, the, the primary service of the kids who are between, I think you said zero to three, mm -hmm. are those therapists, are they employed by Easter seals or do you work with them through some other mechanism? There are staff. So we have in total in central Texas, we employ, um, about 125, um, staff. Um, and when you add our paid job training clients who technically are employees also, but they're client employees, um, in total, uh, it's about 200 people that Easter Seals employs here in Central Texas. Hmm. There's a wide range of, I'm sure, extremely difficult work that those therapists are, are performing. I guess first, my first question would be the primary goal, if I heard you correctly, is autonomy and independence. Mm -hmm. is, that, is that long term? That's the objective for working with individuals with these disabilities. Yes. What in your judgment tends to be the most challenging um the most challenging disability or circumstances that are a maybe more so than others a struggle uh to get people to that point um that's a great question first of all um and right off the bat i would say there isn't any one thing yeah right and um, you know, we're talking about 25% of the population um, experiences some type of disability hmm. throughout their lifetime, right? So we're the only minority group in America that any person can become a part of at any point in time in their life. Hmm. Um, and so when you talk about disability, um, there are, there are, individuals with disabilities that f inside the employment system in this country, in, inside society, they're able to function very well mm. in those systems that we've created to define normal, right? Um, 
there are other individuals that are very gifted. When you look at people on the autism spectrum, yep. um, some of the most intelligent people I have ever met um, would be considered people with disabilities on the autism spectrum who are brilliant, um, are so brilliant that they process the world around them differently than us, quote unquote, normal people do, right? And because they don't process their environment the same way we do, <laughs> you know, we, we essentially, normal society, we've created barriers for these incredibly brilliant people mm. just because they don't feel normal to us, mm. right? And so um, I would say one of the biggest barriers we face, honestly, is quote unquote, I'm air quoting with my fingers <laughs> on right now, um, normal society, getting to the place where we can accept their difference um, and be able to get beyond that to still employ them, to allow them to live in my apartment complex, right? To, um, uh, to befriend them, right? That when I see them in the grocery store, um, I don't think they're weird or abnormal. So I think the biggest challenge, the biggest barrier a lot of our folks face is just helping broader society accept them. Yeah. The, the scope here of who we're talking about that, that this team and this organization works with, you know, you mentioned that the name used to be this, the organization for crippled children. I think something like that. Mm -hmm. I think almost everyone would notice if someone had a physical disability would lump that into that's understood to be a, an impediment to autonomy. What are the other names you mentioned, uh, autism, uh, as one, what are, what are the other, um, ailments or disabilities that may not be as widely well-known mm -hmm. that your team and the organization generally works with? Um, well, there's, um, uh, several. Um, and in some cases, we work with clients that experience multiple of these disabilities simultaneously. But there's um, cerebral palsy. Um, there is uh, multiple sclerosis. There's brain injury, traumatic brain injury. Um, we work with several um, clients that have experienced traumatic brain injury at some point in time in their life. Hmm. Um, uh, you know, there are individuals who are physically challenged. There's an entire, actually a really awesome, uh, they're amazing people, wheelchair community in Central Texas that we're blessed to be able to, to know and work with in some ways. But um, little known fact, Austin actually is one of the epicenters of wheelchair rugby in the nation. <laughs> the coach of the U.S. Olympic um wheelchair rugby team lives here in Austin <laughs> and um, they actually have to go all the way to Birmingham, Alabama as a team to train because we don't have the facilities to be able to do that for them here in central Texas. Um, but there's an amazing wheelchair sports um, community here. And if you ever see these guys play wheelchair rugby, uh, I wouldn't want to touch it with a 10 foot pole um, because they go at it. Um, it is a serious sport, but, um, so those types of, of physical challenges that, you know, really don't have any individual name, but is kind of a broad category. Um, and then when you get into, um, uh, behavioral disabilities, um, and challenges, you know, uh, behavioral health is becoming more and more, uh, I think our understanding of the impact of behavioral health is becoming more and more prevalent as we um, understand better how to um, deal with people who are experiencing some type of behavioral challenge, mm. right? Um, and again, it's just as much about addressing um, and helping the client through the behavioral health challenge as it is about how we as a society um, uh, look at them through our societal lens and how yeah. we understand not only what they're going through, but what caused it and what's going, what it's going to take for us as a society 
to be able to help those friends and neighbors through that challenge. I'm really glad you brought that up because I think I wanted to ask you how you feel like we're doing collectively as a society on that and, and what the biggest points of, in your judgment, what, how are we still ignorant about these concepts? Yeah. Yeah. Well, um, it's a journey, yeah. right? So, uh, it's one of those issues where there probably may not be a finish line. Um, but, if you take a step back and look at it in historical context, um, you realize it wasn't but maybe two generations ago that we as a society, the way we dealt with people with disabilities is we had an entire national state hospital system, right? Um, where you had a child with some type of disability um, and more often than not, um, you would drive them to the state hospital and put them in the state hospital, and that's where they would stay for their entire life. Mm. You know, um, the Kennedys. Yeah. Right? Yes. They had Just a daughter. About that. Yeah. yeah. And their daughter, uh, I lived for a couple of years in Wisconsin, a couple of miles away from the institution that their daughter stayed um, after she experienced her brain injury. Um. And that's how we dealt with disability as a society. So when you think about over the last, just the last 30 years, how we as a society have started to realize the potential for independence that these folks possess, um, the unbelievable drive and desire to live independently that they have. And in many cases, um, all that's required as a society are a few supports, right? A, a, a few hands up along the way. Um, and these folks can do amazing things in society. They can live independently. Mm -hmm. And so that's started, you know, it's been an a, a incredibly hot topic in Texas for a while because uh, we have a state hospital system, a state-supported living um, center system network in Texas the numbers of folks um, living in those centers has dropped dramatically. And it's led to a, a, a real, I think, healthy discussion, passionate and healthy discussion about do we still need to operate these? Mm. And of course, again, going back to disability is a spectrum, right? It is a broad spectrum. And there are families that, that um, have family members with very severe disabilities that um, do require that kind of full-time round-the-clock care. Yeah. And I think we as a society have a moral obligation to provide that to those families. But what we have learned as a society is that the number of people that probably require that intensive service is much less yeah. than what we as a society assumed was needed 30 years ago. And undoubtedly, that has to be viewed as a success that, that we, Huge. so many people are now able to live in that way that wouldn't Huge. have been able to mm -hmm. that, you know, three decades ago, what caused us to be able, I say us as just generally the American population, how did we remove that ignorance from our collective conscience? Like how did, how did we improve in that way? What did we learn that allowed us to make that shift? Well, we have improved, I think, uh, not removed it. Sure. Um, but um, it's not been easy, um, and it's been a hard-fought battle. Um, but I think, honestly, um, when I see the power, you know, I've spent the last eight and a half years in disability services. Hmm. It's been the most rewarding work of my nonprofit career by far because I feel like I have gotten so much more out of it than what I've put in hmm. by being in the same universe as these people for no fault of their own that have these huge, huge physical and intellectual barriers to overcome. And when you see what they do every day to get to work on time, earn a living wage, maintain an apartment, it goes so far beyond what I have to do to get my rear end out of bed and off to work in the morning. Yeah. Every day they're running essentially a, a Ironman triathlon to get to work on time, right? And 
they're not, you know, they're not making millions of dollars. But I have seen some of the most unbelievably happiest people I have ever met in my life. Uh, one is a ticket taker at the Great Hills Theater. Been there for years. Been voted Employee of the Year um, seven or eight times, and um, and she is amazing. She's a ticket taker, and if you met her, you would think that she was the richest person in Austin, Texas. And happy people love her. She, ha- I mean, she has a, a bigger network of friends than I could ever hope to have. Like, unbelievably fulfilled life, and what she has overcome to get to there um, inspires me every day. I can, I can only aspire to experience a small corner of the happiness yeah. um, that that she has experienced as a ticket taker at Great Hills Theater. Yeah. And when you, it, it, it's impossible not to go through your professional life and live day to day and, and being around people like that without learning about myself as a person, right? Like, what is my happiness about? Like, what am I about? Um, and if, if they can accomplish that and achieve that much happiness in the process, like, what, what's getting me down? Right. It, and it sounds like, I mean, this individual you were just mentioning, it's possible 30 years ago or 40 years ago, she would not be doing that. Right. I mean, Absolutely. It, with just as an anecdote, that is an individual that potentially a generation ago would be living in some sort of institution. She'd be in a state hospital or in her parents' basement, essentially, until they passed away. And then she had to go into the state hospital. Um, and now she has she has that opportunity. Um, and so now our challenge is less, still a challenge, but it's less a challenge about how do we change public perception about the possibilities and potential of these. And, and I, I want to come back and remind us, we're talking about 25% of the population. Like this isn't a fringe, yeah. you know, 0.001% rare you know, DNA condition that a couple of people experience in this country. We're talking about 25% of the population yep. that we essentially wrote off until a couple of generations ago. Yep. And so now our biggest challenge is raising the awareness, raising the understanding, raising the acceptance of those of us, again, quote unquote, normal people mm. about um, the fact that these people can be successful. Yeah, can and want to. Oh right? my gosh. They, and that that was something I wanted to ask as you were telling the story about the ticket taker is like, I don't know if this is an overgeneralization or if you would agree with this assessment, but that, that even for people who have intellectual disabilities, it sounds like in her case potentially, that there is an innate desire for con- contribution and work and being a part of the community. I don't know if it's literally that simple or what you might want to add to that, but that strikes me as being part of at least her story. Yeah, Uh, it's a great point. I I learned um, the first month I came to Easter Seals um, that uh, we don't talk about what Easter Seals has done for these poor people Mm. Um, because you get your hand slapped um, because they are so passionate about earning and keeping every shred of independence that they fight for every day, that the inference that Easter Seals saved made, them, saved them <laughs> right? Um, I learned that the hard way, but I learned it um, really quickly. We partner with them, um, and so we work with them to help do that. We provide services that allow them to do that. Um, but what they've achieved isn't the result of a handout. They make that very clear yeah, and, and very accurately clear. Yeah. I think the 25% number you mentioned would shock people who hear that. Mm-hmm. One, why, why is that shocking? And where is there something in that 25% that is giving half of that number, you know, 12.5% of this population is deemed disabled that most people aren't aware of. Where does that total number stem from? Um, well, it stems from the, the full spectrum I mentioned before. Um, 
you know, uh, we are getting better at identifying disability and addressing it, right? So one example, this, this wouldn't, I wouldn't suggest would be an overall driver because it's always been in the 20 to 25% range. <laughs> um, but it is, as you've said, it's been a lack of understanding that the number is what it is, right? So a big chunk of it is an awareness challenge. It isn't, it isn't being driven up where 10 years ago it was only 10%. But now we're calling people that have a bad day somebody with a disability. Like yep. that's that's not what we're talking about. Um, but we are doing a better job, like autism, um, of understanding um, the full extent of the autism spectrum. And we're doing a better job of being able to create therapy services, other programs um, to help individuals on the autism spectrum um, understand better how they can still be successful and live a life um, on the autism spectrum, right? Mm -hmm. So if you look at autism rates, what was it? I'm going to get the exact number wrong. Um, so please don't quote me on this. <laughs> but, you know, like uh, uh, in 1970, um, Something like one in um, 2,000 people were believed to be on the autism spectrum. One in a couple of thousand people yep. on the autism spectrum. Right now, the figure's down to one in, it's less than 100. Uh, is it one in 56? That sounds right. Um, uh, of us yep. are on the autism spectrum, right? And... So we are understanding better um, what it is and how to treat it. And so as, as that understanding of what disability is um, happens, we're also starting to understand, too, that if you're a person with a disability, you know, we have, we have this. And, and God love them because it did amazing work, raised millions of dollars for a long time. But, you know, the, the Jerry Lewis telethon, right? Mm. That if you're a person with a disability, it doesn't mean you're you're a, one of Jerry's kids, right? Yeah. But so often, we think a person with a disability is in a in a wheelchair or has some kind of visual physical issue yeah. that's obvious. And I think we're just starting to to raise um, this uh, society's awareness that disability um, comes in all different shapes, forms, sizes. Um, conditions. I was going to ask you this earlier, and maybe I should have. The, the just the firm definition that the organization uses for that term, disabled. What what does that mean to you and to the organization? Um. So we don't necessarily use the term disabled, yeah. right? We we it's called people first language. Mm. Um, so it's people with disabilities, right? So it's people first. Okay, you're a person first who happens to have some type of disability, right? And so uh, for me, what I've learned um, as someone who didn't have experience working with people with disabilities prior to coming to Easter Seals, it's opened my eyes up, right? That um, what I have seen is that so often what we call a person with a disability has been such an enabler for happiness and success for these people. Hmm. Like, if you work with people with disabilities on a daily basis, these aren't people that sit and cry in the corner. Yeah, um, that we have to talk off a ledge every day. These these are motivated, goal driven, happy, fulfilled people. Yeah, that um, because they have it have had the opportunity to experience the success of overcoming a disability, it's, it gives them this unbelievable confidence, yeah. right? I mean, I, if you meet somebody with cerebral palsy, right? Um, uh, one of my best friends um, is a person with cerebral palsy, works for the Texas Workforce Commission, former board chair of Easter Seals, um, mm -hmm. just an unbelievable friend, an unbelievable man. And who has overcome, I, I tell him all the time, like he, he overcomes more 
obstacles before lunchtime than I've had to overcome in my lifetime. Yeah. And when overcoming obstacles yeah. becomes such an identifier, such a part of who you are, it builds this confidence that anybody that wants to, quote unquote, again, I'm air quoting, yeah. able-bodied able uh, people that want to look down their nose at these folks, they totally don't get it. Yeah. Because everything that they've been conditioned, all the success that they've experienced just in getting to where they are, um, has made them incredibly positive, confident people. Do you think those two things are correlated? That it, it is partly the overcoming of the obstacle that is resulting in the happiness? A hundred percent. Yeah. hundred percent. I mean, I look at it as an employer, you know. Um, you hire people that know how to overcome challenges. Any employee that you have that knows how to overcome challenges I bet bottom dollar is going to be one of one of your best employees, yeah. right? But people that grow up in privilege, right, that have everything given to them, have never had to overcome a challenge, and then get out into the real world and have to figure out how to overcome challenges, I almost feel more sorry for them yeah. than the kids we work with age zero to three that had overcoming challenge ingrained in their very DNA from the day they were born. Yeah. It's what a great of, privilege they've had. It's such a great <laughs> irony about life and about people generally. Mm -hmm. um, I'll just tell you a quick story. When I, when I was in college, I went, to, I went to Duke. So I went to a private school and I had never met kids from private schools. I went to a public high school and going there and meeting a lot of 18 year olds that had grown up in boarding schools a lot of them from the Northeast. I had never met such troubled people in my life. And it took me a while to come up with some pet theory as to what was really causing that. And what I had determined was they had been quote unquote, given everything their entire life. They had come from extremely rich families, but they had essentially no community, no relationship with their parents. I'm, I'm over, I'm overstating it a little bit, but that was generally the, the themes in these kids that would show up to uh, freshman year who were already bordering, bordering on being alcoholics and just dysfunctional generally. And unhappy. And yeah, and that's why, I, that's why I keep coming back to the idea that we as a society, it's really ironic for me to say we work with people with disabilities yeah. because to your point, and it, it's such a great uh, point, Dan, that to use the term disability, after eight and a half years in the space, I, I so don't look at that as a negative. Yeah. Right? And I have to be careful about saying that, yeah, to be sure, sure because yeah. there are, again, 25% of the population, there are disabilities that are incredibly difficult mm. um, and, and do result in families experiencing a lot of stress, a lot of pain. We work with those families every day. Um, but to see their happiness driven by small little wins that they see, right? The, even the severely um, intellectually disabled um, son or daughter that they see respond to something in a way that they never responded to. <laughs> the happiness that that builds, the, the, the success, the joy that that creates in just that little um, uh, burst of light for mm -hmm. them goes so far beyond what how most of the rest of society defines what success yeah. and accomplishment really is. Yeah. And to me, um, that's special because um, success is all around us. Yeah. Accomplishment is all around us. If we're just willing to change our mindset and realize what truly leads to happiness versus what truly leads to us chasing after the next thing that ultimately isn't going to bring happiness anyway. Yeah. I want to talk a little bit about how you ended up in your position. You know, you, you mentioned earlier in the interview that you, you've been doing this now for, I think you said eight, eight and a half years. What got you into this in the first place? Well, so I've been, I've been a nonprofit person. Uh, I guess I should, 
do people first language, people with disabilities. I'm a person with a nonprofit background. (laughs) For uh, 28 years now, so 28 years, um, and so far, I've not made profits um, all 28 (laughs) years, so success. (laughs) Speaking of defining success differently. Um, So no, I've been, I'm a career nonprofit person, started with the American Red Cross at their national office in Washington, D.C., the first nine or so years. Um, was in uh, blood banking and and uh, blood research in Wisconsin for a couple of years. Moved to Austin um, for a job with the American Heart Association. Um, had a terrific experience, eight um, or so years with the Heart Association. And um, so I, I had been in the nonprofit space um, for a while. And through a, a series of, of fortuitous consequences, got connected to the Easter Seals opportunity hmm. and um, started a conversation with them about nine years ago or so that ultimately led to me um, becoming the CEO of Easter Seals. Yeah. Um, so um, why specifically I ended up at Easter Seals, I'm not sure. I mean, you might need to ask the board members that were involved at that time, and um, hopefully they would have a good answer. <laughs> um, but it, it's been a it's been an incredible experience. Yeah. Did you personally have any experience working with disabled people prior to taking the position, or was there something about the work that just spoke to you? Um, I did not. Yeah. Um. But I knew my my career goal was ultimately I wanted to be the CEO of a nonprofit, starting with the Red Cross at their national office. I, I set a goal early on that I wanted to get into the to the CEO level um, with a nonprofit that wasn't what might be considered a, a startup or a mom and pop level, but I wanted to enter in at a uh, with a, a somewhat larger nonprofit. And so when um, the Easter Seals opportunity became available um, and I started to learn um, the size of the organization, the impact that they had, um, that's what really uh, drove the interest. But I had not not worked um, in, in any kind of focused way with people with disabilities prior to that, apart from, you know, some with the, 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 in my blood banking experience, people with uh, certain blood disorders that Mm. we worked with heart association. Obviously we worked with a lot of folks um, experiencing um, cardiovascular disease and stroke. Um, And so I had some experience in that space, but nothing to the level that Easter seals presented. And I want to I want to talk through the general process between like an individual in the community or a family in the community knows about the work and the services that Easter Seals provides, and then what triggers the initial outreach that then leads to the services that you guys provide actually being implemented with that individual. Just generally, talk me through how that process works, how the initial reach out takes place and then what you guys do to begin to help and provide the services that you do? Um, Well, there's a lot of channels, referral channels that come in from all over the community. Um, In our early intervention program for kids age zero to three, um, a lot of referrals from um, uh, family doctors, um, local health systems, um, school districts in some cases. Mm -hmm. Um, and all the way up some of our adult services, uh, we have a housing services program. We provide home modification services for, um, adults with disabilities and veterans with disabilities. Mm -hmm. And so we work with the Texas veterans commission on some of those, um, programs. The city of Austin has a home repair program. Mm -hmm. And so we partner closely with the city of Austin. Um, and a lot of times, um, we work with the family of nonprofits in Central Texas mm. um, that we love and we collaborate with every day um, to find ways to, to serve people differently. More often than not, um, you know, if you looked at the client lists of most nonprofits in Austin, a lot of us are serving the same folks anyway. So why not, 
why not bring it all together and find ways to wrap around services that people need to lift them out of poverty or out of whatever circumstance they face um, by being proactive to, to work that collaborative spirit into the fabric of who we are as a, as a nonprofit network in central Texas. Yeah. And that the work is incredible. It's incredible to me, frankly, that, that, that the name Easter seals is not more widely recognized or understood by the general population, given the, the breadth of the work that the organization does. I'm sure the, at, nat, at a national level, there has probably been some discussion about a potential rename, because that certainly <laughs> threw me off when I began to look into the organization and learn what it did. It was just hard to make the link between disabled, you know, helping people who are disabled and Easter seals. It was just, it didn't quite register initially. I had to kind of look at it a few times before it finally did. Um, the... I want to talk about the success rate. Like, it's incredible what you guys do, and it's incredible that it does seem like more autonomy is being granted to the people in the community who who come and, and seek the services that you provide. How often would you say that the organization is successful in in achieving its goal of providing autonomy and independence and really integrity to people with disabilities? And when you're not. How often does that happen and what's the real challenge or the what seems currently to be an impossible obstacle to making that happen? Um, well, so, you know, we're talking about a, a lifelong journey, yeah. right? And so even when specific interventions, like we have an employment, um, supported employment program where we help people with disabilities find jobs. You know, like all of us, you know, you get one job and more than likely you're not going to keep that job the rest of your life. Right. So um, uh, when I say independence, that's why it's not a finish line. You've achieved independence. We can put the Easter seal seal of approval on you and move on to the next person. Right. Because we were it's a community. Um, and you know, the overused phrase of forever is it takes a village and it's because it's true. That's why it's overused, but for sure in disability services, because people that we work with that help find jobs, a lot of times we find they need to be retrained, redeployed. Um, they need to find another job because in some cases, um, uh, they rely heavily on public transportation and we've had lots of cases where, Cat Metro will change a bus a bus route, and our client do, can't get to the bus anymore because they move the route a, one street over, and they're not mobile enough to be able to travel that distance to get on the bus that took them to work for years, mm-hmm. right? Mm-hmm. And so all of a sudden the employer says, you know, your client abandoned the job; they just stopped showing up. Well, um, you know, so we have to find other ways to get them a job. So it is, it's an ongoing lifelong mission that we, that we carry. Um, I wish we got to the point where once you got, you know, we could say you receive 10 services from Easter seals, you will achieve independence for life. God help us all if we could get there. I don't see that day (laughs) coming anytime soon. Right. Cause you know, again, we're talking about a group that anybody can become a part of at any point in time in their life, right? Um, we work with a lot of adults that experienced their disability for the first time initially at the age of 40, mm-hmm. the age of 50. Um, you know, one of our board members was one of the star soccer players for Texas Christian University in a tragic car accident, um, caused a lifelong disability, um, and as a result, she has turned it into this amazing um, give back gift. Um, she's a board member of ours now. She's started nonprofits that serve people with disabilities. Um, she's a passionate fundraiser uh, for others that need services. And, um, and, and so she became a part of our family um, in her early 20s. Hmm. So... Um, it really is. And, and honestly, that's what I find rewarding about Easter Seals, too, because if you've met one person with a disability, you've met one person with a disability. Yep. They all have unique needs. 
Um, and those needs and the array of services that they require and that they need at any given point in time changes as they go through life. Yeah. People in the community are going to listen to this, and I would be curious to get your thoughts on how they can help. If people are listening to this and they're intrigued, they're interested, they, you know, something has touched their heart related to this conversation, what's the biggest need that in central te Texas specifically you, you guys have that uh, people, you know, ordinary people, quote unquote, might be able to, to help you guys with? Um, well, 9.9 .9 out of 10 nonprofits would say fundraising, right? It's a check, right? And yeah, I'm, I've got at least one or two feet into that 9.9 .9 out of 10 probably. But honestly, when I look at our mission um, and when I, I talk about how society as a whole, how we need to continue to find ways um, to allow these incredible people access to our quote unquote, air quotes, normal society. Mm -hmm. um, it really is contingent on each and every one of us to find a way from our kids in elementary school that um, see the, the special ed kids that, that they come into contact with, helping them understand um, that the differences aren't that different, yep. right? They're just processing the world through a very different lens than you do. And that's it, yep. right? So as parents, um, helping to drive that awareness and understanding from an early age, um, as adults, um, as supervisors, you know, looking to hire employees, understanding that just because someone um, has some type of physical or intellectual disability doesn't automatically mean that they can't work for you. Yep. Right. And cause what, uh, uh, research studies are showing more and more is that particularly for people with disabilities where holding, um, uh, somewhat of an entry level type position for most businesses, those are very high turnover, right? They're just stepping stone jobs for this, the college kid that needs a job in the summer and then they're going to go back to school or whatever, right? Um, what businesses are finding that embrace hiring people with disabilities, Walgreens is a, is a, a, a benchmark example, mm -hmm. CVS um, is another benchmark, is that hiring people with disabilities is actually good for business because they're hiring people that aren't going to turn over. Um, it's not a stepping stone job. Um, these are people that allowing them to stock their shelves is their path to living an independent life. Yep. And they will fight tooth and nail, nail to, uh, for you to allow them to continue to stock their shelves yep. for as long as they possibly can. There is value as an employer in yep. that, right? Um, so as an employer understanding why, um, it's not just a nice, and by the way, you know, I don't, I, I would not want anyone listening to hire a person with a disability out of charity. Yeah. I don't want, I don't want charity. Um, it's good business. It makes sense to hire people with disabilities into the right positions. And so, um, I would challenge employers to take a hard look at um, a workforce that will be the most committed, most engaged, most passionate employees you could possibly employ. Yep. If as an employer, you can get beyond your own um, ideas yeah. of what that disability is and most importantly, what it isn't. Yeah. Right. A lot of good social education is exactly that. Right. I mean, it, exactly. we were talking earlier about the 30, 40 years ago, what the, the world that people who are, you know, intellectually disabled were living in versus today. And, that is a perfect example, I think, of a narrative that I think is prevalent in the culture, which is these people are really not hireable. And as you just said, it isn't out of charity. It's out of a long-term economic, self, pure self-interest, mm -hmm. potentially, for these people really having a passion for those that kind of work. I think one of the best examples we're seeing of this right now is as our understanding of autism and what the autism spectrum is, um, is becoming more apparent, um, by most best guesstimates right now, probably um, at least uh, about 30% of 
employees in the high tech sector <laughs> are probably on the autism spectrum. Yeah. So, you know, without being able to diagnose it formally, right? Like I'm a person with autism without even having that understanding or knowledge, 30% of probably the highest growth economic sector in this nation's <laughs> history, for sure since the Industrial Revolution, was driven by people with disabilities. Yeah, 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 it's so true. And as we wind this conversation down, I want to go over a couple other things. Um, one is, just to clarify again, the, the segments of people with disabilities with whom the organization work with. I think you mentioned it's phys physical, it's cognitive, it's addiction as well. I think you mentioned, are there others as well? Or is it just those three? Um, it's yeah, pretty much those three physical, um, intellectual, um, behavioral, behavioral, right. Um, and, um, addictive disabilities. Okay. Maybe if we could spend just a couple of minutes on the addictive and the behavioral side, we've talked a lot about the, uh, the other two. Talk to me about that. Addiction is something I think a lot of people know is, um, a plight with, within the country. Mm -hmm. What, how do you help people who are going through that kind of suffering? Um, well, we, uh, uh, we're patient, yep. um, and it's hard work. Um, and it's, it is, it's heart wrenching. I mean, in so many ways, um, it, it presents a bigger challenge than even someone born with a physical or intellectual disability, right? right? Um, the hold that you see that it has on folks. So our, um, uh, it, it, um, manifests itself programmatically at Easter Seals primarily through our paid job training program. Mm. So a lot of the folks that clients that we hire to do that lawn and landscaping work are uh, coming out of the criminal justice system. And as you know, in Texas, you know, if you have a record, Texas is one of the uh, most difficult states in America to actually um, think about supporting yourself and living an independent life if you have a criminal justice record. And so they come out and we provide um, employment opportunities for them as a stepping stone. We hire a lot of folks um, from halfway houses um, into this program. And, um, and a good percentage of the clients that come out of those situations um, we work with, we provide services, we work with other organizations, we refer them to, um, and yet still, um, you know, they they fall back into criminal justice, they come out and we have to have a different mindset than a traditional employer, right? Yeah. Where, you know, you did this and it was against the employee handbook. And so we'll never hire you again. Well, um, not that kind of program. You know, yeah. we hire a lot of folks that mess up. Um, they fall back into whatever they were into. They come back out and we give a second, third, fourth, we're a fifth chance employer. Um, and we never give up on those folks. Yeah. And um, I wish we knew. I wish we had um, scientific evidence that said this array of services will lead to independent living for people with these addictions. We haven't come up with that yet yeah. so we keep we keep working with all of our partners in the community to find that way in um and help that person through that addiction yeah in closing and with my final question before i, I ask you i just want to first just say on behalf of the community thank you for the work that you and the organization does it's um i love highlighting organizations like yours because it's i have such gratitude for the fact that these places exist and the amount of good that you put back into the community and, and the amount of help that you provide. And, um, like you said, I think we all like to think that we are self-made and that we could never need services that places like Easter seals provide. That's obviously not true. And, um, it's because of organizations like this that I think there's a support system for people who in a potentially a really traumatic time in their life have options and have services. Um, how I want to close is just by asking you, I know you've probably done plenty of these interviews over your career just to speak on anything else that you think is worth the public's attention or additional myths that you think is worth 
um, correcting or disabusing people of certain notions. You've done already some of this in the conversation, but just to open it up for you to have as much time as you'd like to talk about anything else that you, you haven't gotten a, a chance to address. Wow. Well, world peace. No, <laughs> no we won't start there. I, you know, I'm, I'm, glad, I'm glad you asked that because I think one of the things is I think about barriers um, that, that I don't think we've really mentioned a lot is poverty, right? And if you look at national statistics for people with disabilities, um, our folks um, have uh, 50% higher poverty rate than the national average, right? So... Uh, while we are a disability services nonprofit, we are also very much, we have a big foot um, in the poverty abatement um, uh, mission also. Um, uh, 60%, 70%, about 70% of people with disabilities are unemployed. Imagine if we had a national unemployment rate of 70%. You mm -hmm. think you look, look at the outrage we've experienced the last year through this pandemic yep. when the unemployment rate ticked up whatever it ticked up to, right? We I'm talking 50 years people with disabilities have had a 70% unemployment rate. And yet we haven't really gotten to the point where we want to address a particular group of people that represent 25% of the population with a 70% unemployment rate. And that leads to poverty issues. And when you think about uh, poverty, uh, I think you mentioned myths. You know, um, one of the myths that I've seen, because I've worked with people in poverty, I've worked with volunteers and board members who are very wealthy, successful. Um, this myth um, that, that, um, is still very much ingrained that poverty is a direct result of effort, right? Um, that, you know, um, it's lazy people that yeah. are in poverty, right? Um, and if we could start to get beyond just that one thought, right? Because to oversimplify it, you know, it makes us just feel better. Again, us quote unquote normal people, what we do to feel good about just living our own um, uh, uh, occluded existence on this planet. Mm -hmm. And so one of the things we do to not feel so bad about people that live in poverty is to say, oh, well, I worked harder than them. Uh, let me tell you, I I've known a lot of people, uh, a lot of really wealthy people and, and um, the amount of annual income they earn or any of us earns is absolutely directly unrelated to the amount of effort they put into that job every year, right? Mm -hmm. So, um, and for us, when we think about people with disabilities, getting over a disability is obviously an unbelievable challenge. Imagine being a family um, with a child with a disability that also for no fault of their own. Um, and by the way, even if it is by fault of their own, um, why does that matter? Also have, uh, to overcome poverty on top of yeah. a child with a disability. Um, imagine what we as a society could do for families that are without hope. Um, when you're facing poverty as a challenge and disability as a challenge and you start to understand and you invest enough time into these folks to understand this has nothing to do with hard work. And at the end of the day, these are people that work three times harder than I have ever worked a day in my life. Mm. And most people, um, uh, quote unquote, normal people have ever worked. Um, they're working multiple jobs they the stress related to how they're going to access a health system that they don't have access to to get the services that they know their child is going to need to live independently because the parents aren't going to be around forever so what's going to happen to my child after i die mm. right yep. can you even imagine like dropping your kid off at college you feel like you're walking off a cliff i just had to do that twice <laughs> in the last couple of years right Imagine the thought that if I got hit by a bus tomorrow, like my child depends 100% on me and I live in poverty on top of that. Um, 
there is a sector of this community that if we could just get beyond our own political and and whatever other beliefs about what motivated, quote unquote, them to end up in poverty, like they chose that, um, if we could just, you know, as Stephen Covey said in, you know, the seven habits, the most important one is seek first to understand, then to be understood. If we as a society could put that much more effort into understanding those families, what it's like to live a life with no hope. And what that ultimately as a barrier is to overcome in addition to poverty and disability. If we as a society could be generous enough to give those folks not a handout, but a hand up, um, I think it would be transformational for, for us, who we are as a people, as a society, and also economically. Mm-hmm. When you think about what um, we're going to need to continue to grow our economy, um, uh, people living in poverty with no hope, um, even if you want to look at it through a straight economic lens, we're going to have to help um, them carve out a bigger economic niche to, f- to fuel the um, economic rebound that we all, all hope are having the next couple of years. Mm-hmm. So if we look at this as a moment in time, as we've all experienced economic downturn and hardship the last year, right? Um not to just look at that as a blip of a uh, caused by a pandemic, but to seek to understand what that felt like. You know, when I was, I didn't know if, if am I still going to have a job when this pandemic is over? What did that feel like? What fear did it, did it engender? You know, um, the depression that it's caused us as a nation. When you think about families that, that deal with that, like it, it, I'm not going to minimize the pandemic, but the impact that poverty, disability, all these things has on those families, um, you live your entire life in the middle of a raging pandemic. Yep. And so if we could understand that as a society and use that to motivate us to be more generous um, in, in what we're willing to support in terms of government programs that aren't going to be perfect, by the way, right? Mm-hmm. Like it's never going to be perfect. But at least if we as a society could become emotionally generous enough to understand the plight of families that have lost hope in this community and reach out to them in meaningful ways, it would transform Austin. Yeah. Well, Todd, thank you for the conversation, mostly the time. I know you're a busy guy, and um, I think I speak on behalf of a lot of people in just wishing you guys the best of luck here moving forward with the organization, with everything else. Thank you. Thanks, Dan. I appreciate it.